The epistle is from 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please rise for the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 16th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus said, A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. We're going to start with a little Bible history. It's always good to review some of the stories that we don't necessarily hear very often on a Sunday morning. Some Bible history about the patriarch Joseph. Joseph, who takes up the last third of the book of Genesis. That's his story. He's a patriarch. He's one of the fathers of the people of Israel. And his father was Jacob, and Jacob's father was Isaac, and Isaac's father was Abraham. So you get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three patriarchs, and then Joseph, who was, as I think you know, Jacob's favorite son. Jacob's favorite son to whom he gave a robe, a very special robe. And that robe really sets the stage for everything that follows in Joseph's life. He never could have known it. If you'd asked Joseph when he received that robe what was going to come of it, he could never have predicted it. Sometimes we look back on life with what is called 
2020, or hindsight bias. We look back on life and we can say, oh, I saw how that all worked out, that made sense, one thing followed from the next. We think of it as kind of deterministic, it had to happen that way. But really, it didn't. Could have happened any number of different ways and there was no telling. When you made that choice, when you made that move, when you did that thing, there was no telling what would come from it. There was no telling for Joseph what would come from receiving that robe. And to help you remember the story, I want to give you four landmarks along the way. So I was thinking about helpful ways to remember this. There's four locations that are important in Joseph's story. The first is the pit, the pit, then the bedroom, then the prison, and then the palace. The pit, the bedroom, the prison, and the palace. Joseph ends up in a pit because his brothers hate him. They hate him because he's his father's favorite, who's received this robe, and because Joseph has had some dreams that seem to indicate that he's the best one of them all. Now, he probably could have been a little bit more prudent and not told his brothers about his dreams. That's usually not a good idea, to tell your brothers how you're better than them. But he did it, and he wound up in a pit. His brothers put him in a pit at first, thinking they would murder him, but then later decided they could make some money off of him, so they sold him to some slave traders. In that first stop, in the pit, Joseph was literally down in the dumps, right? He was below the ground. Nothing could seem worse. He had gone from being the favorite of his father to now sitting in the bottom of a well, not knowing what is going to happen to him, finding himself in the hands of merciless, merciless enemies. So there he is in the pit, sold into slave trade, and ends up in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, God is with him. God shows him favor. So it's not just his father who shows him favor, but it's also God who shows him favor. And that's an important thing to remember in Joseph's story. So while Joseph is in the house of his slave master, Potiphar, Joseph does really well. He succeeds. Everything that he sets his hand to, he accomplishes, and his master recognizes that it's from God, that Joseph is blessed by God. And so he gives him control over the whole household. He is in second in command to Potiphar alone. But then one day, the bedroom scene occurs. And Potiphar's wife, who saw Joseph, who was handsome and successful, well, she tried to entice him, to seduce him. And Joseph resisted. He said no. And what's that saying about hell having no fury like a woman scorned? What does she do? She sounds the alarm and calls all of the guards, and Potiphar, her husband, comes and he throws him into jail. That second stop, that stop in the bedroom, there Joseph acts righteously. He does this deed of righteousness. He resists, and he's thrown into jail for it. And there he sits in prison, the third stop on his journey. The pit, the bedroom, and then the prison. And in prison, he seems to be forgotten. He's forgotten even when he does this marvelous deed for his fellow prisoners. He interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. He interprets their dreams, and when one of them is restored to his position, under Pharaoh, Joseph says, please remember me so I can come out of this place. I've done nothing to deserve to be here. But he's forgotten. There in prison, Joseph is forgotten. Until one day, kind of as an accident, he's remembered. And he's drawn out of prison and he interprets a dream for Pharaoh. And in interpreting that dream about the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows and the seven healthy stalks of grain and the seven dried up withered stalks of grain, Joseph shows Pharaoh that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and he suggests that a wise and discerning man should be placed over the whole kingdom to make sure 
that when the famine comes, they have enough. And then Joseph finds himself in the palace, set above all the rest, not second in command to a householder like Potiphar, but second in command to Pharaoh. There's nothing that is withheld from Joseph's power. He's given authority over everything. And there he sits in the palace on his fourth stop. The pit, the bedroom, the prison, and the palace. None of those destinations you could have seen could Joseph have seen when he received that robe from his father. Lots of suffering, lots of sorrow along the way, lots of grief. I like to describe it, and some of you have heard me describe it as a roller coaster. It's up and down and up and down. And we see in Joseph this beautiful example of faithfulness, steady along the way, trusting God's promises. And that is how he can endure such sorrow. That is how he can last in the face of increasing sorrow, one sorrow leading to the next and greater sorrow. In fact, that is how Joseph can believe that his sorrow will turn to joy. That's why I'm telling you this story today, because Joseph shows us what happens when you believe what Jesus said in our gospel lesson, when you believe that God intends to turn your sorrow to joy. But first, notice a few things about sorrow. Notice where it comes from. In the first place, Joseph's sorrow comes from the favor that he receives from his father and from God. He's shown this great favor by his father in receiving this robe, and God gives him this dream showing that he's going to be king over all of his brothers, and that favor leads to sorrow. He's despised for it. When God is gracious and kind to you, you can expect that the world will hate it. They do not want you to rejoice in God's gifts. They do not want you to receive his blessing. And when you do, the world despises you for it. But that's not accidental. That's not just happenstance. That's discipline. This is how God regards his children, with discipline, teaching us that we should trust in him and receive good things from his hand and not expect them from the world. It's his favor that often leads to our sorrow, and it is also righteousness that leads to sorrow. There's the prime example of Joseph in the bedroom doing this righteous deed of refusing Potiphar's wife, and what happens? What does he get for it? Nothing good. He's thrown into jail. He's despised. He's lied about. His reputation is besmirched. Nothing good comes from him. He could have, in that moment, He could have said, this is not worth it. I know what's going to happen if I refuse this woman. I know what's going to happen if I say no. He could have just gone along with it. But instead, no, he chose righteousness and he receives sorrow on account of that. And that sorrow is unjust. So here's the third thing we learn about sorrow. That it is often unjust. For God's faithful people, for people who trust themselves to God, who believe his promises, you will be treated unjustly by this world. Jesus says, if they treat me this way, if they call false witnesses against me, if they heap me up on a cross and nail me for sins that I never committed, what will they do to you? That's what Jesus says. You should expect your sorrow to be unjust. Now, you should note, as Peter did, and I mentioned this last week, that if you suffer, if you experience sorrow for your sins, because you have sinned, well, then you got what was coming to you. There's no credit in that. There's no glory in that. You don't have any grace or favor from God in that when you sin and suffer sorrow for it. If Joseph had sinned with Potiphar's wife, if he'd thrown up his hands and said, this is not worth it, I'm just going to go with the flow, he would have gotten what he asked for. 
there would have been more suffering. There would have been more sorrow. Here's how Solomon puts it in the book of Proverbs. He says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Could Joseph sleep with Potiphar's wife and not suffer consequences for it? What would Potiphar do? That would be the end for Joseph. He would have suffered. There would have been sorrow, but he would have deserved it. And that would have been no credit in the sight of God. All bets are off when you choose sin. And note this, how tempting it is to choose sin. When the choice is between one sorrow for righteousness and another sorrow for sin, how tempting it is to just choose the sorrow that goes along with the pleasant sin that you want. But again, you get what you deserve. God's promises are only useful to those who believe in him. And when we choose sin, we show that we have not trusted in him, that we have not believed his promises. If you do not receive from God what his hands provide, then you can only receive what your own hands can provide, and that is nothing good. But the last and most important thing we learn about sorrow from Joseph's story is this, the whole point of what Jesus says, that he intends to turn your sorrow into joy. Not to replace it, not to take your sorrow and to find something that's joyful to come out of it. Not to take your sorrow and send it away and give you joy instead, but, in, but to turn your sorrow into joy, to convert it into joy. How does God do that for Joseph? Well, it really isn't what you might expect. It's not the restoration of Joseph's fortunes. It's not that he all of a sudden has all of the authority in Egypt. It's not that he's rich and powerful and can do whatever he wants. It's not even merely that he's been brought out of the pit or out of prison or been vindicated against the injustice that was committed against him. Here's the joy for Joseph. At the very end of the story, his father and his brothers come to him. His father and his brothers come to him. He's restored to his family. He's reunited with his father, and he's reconciled to his brothers. Now, Joyce Joseph, if he had failed every test up to this point, if he had chosen sin over righteousness, if he'd chosen to reject the sorrows of God and choose his own sorrows, he might have, in that last moment when his brothers showed up, taken vengeance on them, made them pay for what they'd done to him. It was their fault, after all. They started this when they were jealous of his robe and jealous of his dreams. He could have made them pay, and then he would have gotten what his hands could provide, vengeance. Some delight for a moment, but then, no family, no brothers. He would have brought gray hairs on the head of his father as he went down into the grave. It would have been worthless. And so instead, Joseph forgives. He receives his brothers back. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God has turned it into joy. Turned it into joy. Joseph wept tears of joy as he was restored to his father and reconciled to his brothers. This is what Jesus means when he says that you will have sorrow for a little while, you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice, but he intends to turn your sorrow into joy. When you trust in Jesus, it is not like the exercise for you is simply to look for the silver lining in whatever suffering you're enduring. That is a futile exercise. Sometimes you can see a silver lining. Sometimes you can see some good that might come from your sorrow. You can work it out in your mind and say, okay, that was worth it because I saw the outcome. But that doesn't work in the end when you take your last breath and you are laid in the grave. Where is the good that comes out of that? Where is the joy, the silver lining you can see in that? That is not what Jesus is talking about. Neither is he talking about some sort of a karma 
where you've suffered a whole bunch of sorrow and so you get a whole bunch of joy in return. If you suffer bad things, God will give you good things to take their place. No, he means this, that he will turn your sorrow into joy. That he will turn your sorrow into joy like the sorrow of Jesus on the cross was turned into his joy. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, suffering the shame, enduring everything that was heaped on him, knowing that that cross itself, that sorrow itself, that suffering itself, was the source of joy for the future, joy for you and for the whole world, joy for him as he was reconciled and restored to you. That was the joy. Not that he took vengeance against his enemies, not that he had all kinds of power and authority and might or wealth, but that you were restored to him. That was the joy of Jesus on the cross. That is what his sorrow and his suffering produced. And that is how Jesus wants you to think. But everything that you endure in this life, every last bit of sorrow, think about it like the cross. Don't think, when will this be taken away from me so that I can get something good instead? But think like Jesus did. How will God use this sorrow and turn it into joy? It's like the suffering of a woman in labor. Imagine a woman in the throes of labor, if she forgot why she was laboring, why this pain was there, why she is hurting so bad, she would give up. This feels like death. I can see no good that is going to come out of this kind of pain. That's what she would say if she forgot that she was about to give birth to a beautiful child. But remembering that a child comes from this sorrow, that in fact, that child is the source of her sorrow and her suffering and her pain, that is what gives her endurance and hope. And that is what can give you an endurance and hope now in the face of whatever it is that tries you and grieves you. Jesus can turn even the cross into joy. He can take your sorrows, your grief, your suffering, and turn them into joy. And that's the beautiful position that we get to be in as Christians. This is our spot as Christians. It's simply to hear Jesus' words and trust his promises and sit and be amazed at what he can accomplish. Be amazed at the miracle of turning sorrow into joy. Be amazed at his love, his mercies, which are new every morning, his faithfulness, which is great beyond measure, and his kindness to us, by which he never intends to hurt us, but only to help us, never to curse us, but only to bless us. Rejoice. Though you sorrow for a little while now, rejoice. Because Jesus means to turn your sorrow into joy. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen. Amen.